Hello, and welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, one of the evidence-based sections of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. What do we do here? Well, we sort of emulate most of the steps of evidence-based medicine focused on a real clinical question. Now, as I'm sure many of you will know, there are five steps to evidence-based practice. The first is to ask a question in a structured way. The second is to go out and acquire some information that might answer it. Then you have to appraise that evidence, look at its strengths and its weaknesses, and then think about how you might apply it in practice, given those strengths and weaknesses, the context, the area that you're working in. The fifth step is is to assess your performance in some way. And we talk about this as a continuous professional development activity. So it might be that you, after taking this, Write your own Archimedes and submit it following the instructions on the web page. Or you might just pop it in your e-portfolio, or you may just reflect in a meaningful and philosophic manner over a glass of some fine drink. Anyway, we start off with a little bit about how we do medicine and how we do it in a critically appraised sort of way. Back in the dawn of home computing, there was a war between those who were fans of the colourful version of the ZX Spectrum and those who were loyal to the VIC-20's big brother, the Commodore 64. The problem of Spectrum bias is not in any way related to these forerunners of today's games console, but it is a potential problem with the diagnostic tests across different healthcare settings. When researchers are assessing how effective a diagnostic test is, they will compare the ability to make or exclude a diagnosis with a reference standard. And the reference standard is the thing that we would rely on to say it's definitely there or it's definitely not. There might be a mixture of reference standards. Um, So, for example, it might be that you do histological confirmation of appendicitis alongside they went away and they didn't come back with appendicitis over the course of the next six weeks and they didn't have any surgery. Anyway, they compare this reference standard, but in a population similar to that in which it will be used in practice. And the reason that we do that uh, is that this group will then be able to tell us uh, who has a, a set of positive tests. Some of those will be true positives. They do have the disease with a positive test. Some of those will be false positives that they do ha- don't have the disease, but they do have a positive test. And then there'll be the same sort of thing with the negative tests. Those who do have the disease, but have a negative test the false negatives, and those without the disease and with the negative tests, the true negatives. And there will be people in every one of those four squares, unless the test is perfect. And it is very, very uncommon to have a Mary Poppins test. Now, the reason why we get the false positives and the false negatives, that might vary across different groups of patients. And that is the core of spectrum bias. For example, it might be that white cells in the urine are a great indicator of potential urinary tract infection. But if you use this test in a neutropenic population, where the overall white count is very low, then it becomes less helpful. I mean, if you think about it, there just aren't the number of white cells to fall into the urine. Similarly, if you use a physical examination finding of wheeze to indicate asthma or reactive airways disease, In a group of kids at very high risk of invasive fungal infection, you might find a whole load of false positives. 
This issue of spectrum bias, to avoid it, we should ideally be uh, investigating every single diagnostic test in every possible population. But a more pragmatic approach is to use clinical expertise and maybe bits of data around to understand how the test characteristics may be either blunted or, or sharpened in the different areas of practice. And that requires people to report those diagnostic evaluations really thoroughly. And hopefully, more and more people will do so as the time goes on. Now, after those bits of that, we go on to the actual evidence-based malarkey. And this report comes from Nikita Ramajuraman and Tim J. Van Hasselt who are bombed the paediatric research across the Midlands PRAM network and based at the University of Birmingham in the UK. They asked the question, what is the prevalence of portal vein thrombosis following umbilical venous catheterization in very preterm infants? The scenario that kicked this off was in a neonatal unit looking after a 28-week baby requiring a UVC, a routine echo to examine PDA found an echogenic, non-inclusive thrombus in the left portal vein, and it was thought to be secondary to that UVC placement. And that then got them wondering, well, how common does this they occur? They looked for the prevalence of portal vein thrombosis in those either under 32 weeks gestational age or very low birth weight, under 1.5 kilos. And they also looked to see what the significant complications of that were. They did an extensive search, and it's worth looking at the full article to see just how they put the various bits together across Medline, Embase, and Sinal, looking after 1990 for sort of modern versions of care, and found 224 articles. Of those, they included nine systematic reviews, and they screened through those and found even more. They excluded pure case studies or case series and were really looking for cohort studies. And this approach, pulling things together and looking at when you've got the best possible evidence, is a way that we strongly suggest happens with the Archimedes papers. Of all of these things, they did find four prospective studies. Three of them were just a single cohort. One of them was a prospective cohort with a randomised controlled trial. Now, they weren't really looking at the randomization. They were looking instead at the answer to their question. What was the risk of portal vein thrombosis? And, where followed up, what was the risk of complications? They found the rate varied really quite a lot. From 50% in a study of 106 babies, all the way down to 10% in the randomised controlled trial. But when they looked for outcomes particularly significantly negative outcomes, they didn't have a huge amount. The studies, as you can imagine, varied a little bit as to whether they were doing screening ultrasounds or whether it was picked up by symptoms. They looked to see in different ways how to do that ultrasounding and they all had different times for the UVCs to be in situ. It's really difficult to tell exactly what the right thing to do with a UVC is. The American group suggests that a UVC should be in for a maximum of 14 days, but should be left in situ for the shortest time possible. And I think that's true of all plastic, really, isn't it? When you don't need it, you should get it out. 
They also looked to see if there were elements that were increasing the risk of thrombus, such as really low birth weight, sepsis, asphyxia, uh, thrombophilias, um, twin to twin syndromes, or, or, or the sort of the, the thick blood of high hematocrit. When they looked at that, they did look to see that in the end result, a high hematocrit, greater than 55%, did appear to be linked to thrombosis, but the other factors didn't really stand out. Now, in these sorts of studies, with these sorts of numbers of patients, um, we're not talking very large numbers. As I say, we've got one of 31 all the way up to one of 210 looking for multiple potential causative factors is always going to be underpowered. That is, you'll be on the risk of saying there isn't a link when there actually is. But the one that stood out was thick blood, and that sort of makes sense. What are the clinical bottom lines that the group came up with? Well, they suggest that we don't know. The prevalence of thrombosis might be anywhere between 10 and 50%, but that where followed up, the incidence of complications is really low. However, a big rider on that in that the work is sketchy and hasn't been done in large numbers of patients and we can't get a true estimate. Thank you for listening to our podcast this month. You can find it on Apple Music, on Spotify, on loads of places where you get your podcasts. And indeed, you almost certainly will have done like this. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend, write a review for us, get in touch, send us gifts, flowers, chocolates. And if you really, really liked it, why don't you try and write an Archimedes yourselves? Go through that five-step process, follow the steps on the website and send in your article for consideration for publication. I look forward to speaking to you next time. <laughs>